Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I am Professor Jay Bhattacharya, and with me here today is uh, Alex Washburn. Alex uh, and I have become close friends during the pandemic. Um, I, I first got to know Alex through his work early in the pandemic, where uh, I saw some uh, really, really interesting papers that he was writing. I think it was like February, March, April 2020, very, very early on, examining how the uh, the trend in the influenza-like illnesses had changed over the course of the early course of the pandemic, with a very strong conclusion suggesting that the, the disease had arrived much earlier than people realized through, through the shores of the United States, that we were, in fact, just misdiagnosing in a way uh, COVID because we didn't have tests and stuff, and, and in fact, it was showing up as high levels of influenza early on, meaning that the disease was here much earlier than we realized that the official start date probably wasn't right. Alex, uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute delight to be able to talk with you. Jay, thanks so much for having me here. I'm really looking forward to talking with you too. Well, you know, the the the, uh, the podcast theme is the illusion of consensus. And uh, getting to know you through that, uh, through that was, was, was really, it was actually quite inspiring to see, because I had had that very, very similar kind of idea early on, and yet I th people thought I was crazy for having it. I did a, a an op-ed in the in the Wall Street Journal and a, and a, and a seroprevalence study trying to find uh, whether the disease was more widespread than we'd realized, and that's exactly the the, the 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 conclusion I came to based on that scientific work. And of course, in science, you need consilience. If you have one piece of evidence that's not quite enough, you want to have other pieces of evidence that uh, that that are a real test of the idea finding very, very similar things. Um, that's where you come from. You come from a scientific background, right? I mean, in fact, you're not, you're not, uh, your background really wasn't in epidemiology before, right? What, 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 tell, tell the, tell the audience about your background. I think it's really important and interesting given that what we're mainly going to be talking about is, is about gain of function work. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jay. I have a checkered past. Um, <laughs> I have undergraduate degrees in both mathematics and biology, and I'm fluent in both. And my PhD thesis was on competition, which the mathematics for competition are at the heart of evolutionary theory and ecological competition, like trees in the tropical rainforest competing for canopy space. Those same models are also used in stochastic portfolio theory to model competition between companies or shares in a sector, stock prices, market capitalizations in a sector. Um, so that led to this divergence in my path where by day I was an academic doing biostatistics and studying pathogen spillover from bats to people and viral origins like filoviruses like Ebola. And by night I was working with hedge funds, analyzing alternative data sets to try to gain some business intelligence on which stocks go up and which go down. So, so you um, were doing biology and economics. No wonder we got along, uh, given that those were, those are kind of my fields also. Um, I, so, so you, you, uh, but like, tell, tell me more a little bit, or tell the audience more a little bit about your work in the past. With, I mean, you said you worked with Ebola, so you're working with like dangerous pathogens. Like, what kind of work were you doing with these dangerous pathogens before? Well, I was more of a quant guy, um, so I was doing the data analysis and the modeling. And what I was doing with um, mostly Hanipa viruses, which are like Hendra, Nipa, um, Cedar virus, stuff like that. The Hanipa viruses have a very high infection fatality rate, something like 50% or higher. Um, Nipa will often spill over from bats to people through the consumption of date palm sap. So people take a palm tree, put a, st a stake in it, sap comes out into a bucket, the bats pee in the bucket, people drink the bucket, and they get Nipa virus. Um, there was another Nipa outbreak in Malaysia that's believed to have occurred from bats to people, so bats to pigs to people. Um, and then 
Hendra virus in Australia spills over from bats to horses. The horses become amplifiers and the people who are typically caretakers of the horses get sick. And so those are very serious you know, pathogens of concern and all pathogens come from somewhere. And so we have to study where they're coming from and how they're coming from there to people to better understand if we can preempt pathogen spillover. So I helped write part of a DARPA preempt grant before COVID studying these Nipah viruses. And I was working with Raina Plowright at Montana State University, looking at pathogen spillover from bats to people, but then broadening, more broadly looking at taxonomic patterns in which viruses spill over, um, as well as coming up with frameworks for how to do attribution when a pathogen spills over. How can we kind of trace back a source and come up with a likely reservoir um, and then studying with the filoviruses was interesting because they have this weird insertion of a gene called VP35 that is not found in the cousins or the close relative sister clade of the filoviruses. So this sister clade called the pneumoviruses, they look just like filoviruses, but they don't have this whole gene inserted. And so filoviruses have that gene. Where did it come from? This is a key piece of the evolutionary history of filoviruses. That gene is also found in bats, and some filoviruses have been found in bats. Marburg and Yovu, um, and even Ebola has been found in a bat. And so this leads to this kind of broader evolutionary and biogeographic story of filoviruses as potentially having acquired this gene from bats. The gene itself helps turn off the alarm bells inside the cell. It suppresses the innate immune system when an RNA virus infects the cell. So it's a really useful thing for a virus to get its hand on. So one hypothesis for the origin of filoviruses is an ancient pneumovirus infected a bat. The bats turned on the alarm bells that expressed this VP35 gene, and that inserted into the pneumovirus that became the filoviruses. And so I was studying that, and how can we you know, really look closely at the sequences in filoviruses and pneumoviruses to try to disentangle this ancient evolutionary event? And so that's kind of broadly what I was working on with pathogen spillover. I mean, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. So like basically the, the viruses learn from each other in the context of, of a common host. Um, and they're, I mean, of course, they're trying to compete with each other, try to hide from the, uh, the attacks on it within the host so that they can survive longer. And, and there's all these like trade-offs, like if they're, if they're too, if they're too deadly, then they don't spread, spread so much. I mean, there's all these like really interesting mathematics. Cause so that's what you did for a living before. I, it strikes me as like the, 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 background you have is absolutely perfect for this. I mean, this is, this is, this virus, I mean, bats definitely played a role in the development of this virus, the, this SARS, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Of course, that, that's, and that is, of course, the, the big question of concern. How much of a role did bats play versus how much of a role did humans play? Uh, and, and intentionally, did humans play a role in this? You're saying that you have, you, in, in, the, in the days before the pandemic, in the years before the pandemic, you worked on specifically sleuthing how did these genetic changes come about in these viruses? How can you find when there is an outbreak, the origin of an outbreak? Is it, is it pigs? Is it, is it, uh, is it bats yeah. and whatnot? And there are two competing theories. So the filovirus story that I told you is a theory that I think is more likely, but there's another theory that says, well, there's chunks of VP35 are also found in other mammals. So maybe the crown group, the common ancestor of all these distant mammals, um, maybe that acquired the gene from a filovirus 65 million years ago. So it's a question of whether they acquired this gene 10,000 years ago from a bat 
or whether bats and, and their ancestors acquired this 65 million years ago from a filovirus. And so the directionality of this recombination event was is a major kind of source of uncertainty for the age of filoviruses and with it, a sense of where these viruses can be found in nature, where they're likely to spill over. Yeah, that's what I was doing pre-COVID. Actually, just I, this is an aside, but it's really fascinating. How do you, how do you tell? How do you tell the difference between a virus uh, or a, a bit of a bit of genetic material that's been inserted 65 million years ago that's, uh, that common ancestors, you know, eons and eons ago had versus a recent insertion? Well, it's difficult. Um, the... One, you can go into the molecular mechanisms of how these different transfers likely occurred. For a virus, an RNA virus that's floating inside of the cell to acquire an RNA transcript from the bat, that's pretty easy. That's just recombination of two chunks of RNA, and that could happen without really leaving a major trace. On the other hand, in order for a bat to acquire this chunk of RNA from a virus, um, which isn't unheard of because 10% of our genome is of viral origin. Only 2% of our genome codes for proteins like our hair and our eye color and the things that we typically think make us what we are. But 10% is of viral origin. And a lot of that genetic material of viral origin can be acquired and copied and pasted with a process called reverse transcription. And, um, and these, these, uh, Reverse transcriptases integrate RNA into DNA, sometimes leaving very particular scars. Um, this is and then the, this is the opposite of the, like the central dogma. The central dogma of biology, DNA, RNA, which is then translated into proteins, right? But you're saying there are enzymes that, uh, that can take the RNA and then turn it into DNA, which might get incorporated in, into, the, into the genetic material. The virus That's is something exactly that you right. That's Naturally. exactly right. And so some of this has been documented and, you know, in some special cases that if you infect viruses, cells with RNA viruses, you can get reverse transcription happening and integration into the genetic material. Um, but it's still, it's a difficult story to disentangle. I thought one of the best ways we could test it would actually be to sequence bats. Because under the hypothesis that this came from a bat, we would be able to find some bat floating around in nature that we just haven't sequenced its whole genome yet. And that genome would contain an even closer relative of VP35 found in Ebola than the ones we see now. So if we could kind of triangulate on the bat tree to get closer to this, that would corroborate the hypothesis that this came from a bat and not vice versa. Because if this came from an ancestral uh, version, then it's unlikely that bats and their evolution are going to get closer to this ancestral version. Their evolution will drift away from whatever VP35 filoviruses have. So that's how I thought to test this hypothesis. And I was calling people like Christian Anderson and others at, you know, Bruce Byrne at MIT. Christian to, Anderson, that, that name has come up a lot in the game of function work. So you you, you were familiar with him and, and actually to some extent uh, tried to work with him before the pandemic. Yeah, well, I touched base and run this idea by him. And he said, oh, great idea. I don't have the bandwidth, you know, and ran it by Bruce Byrne at MIT. And we were getting some, you know, some logistics rolling which is difficult in my position as a postdoc, but we were still trying to get logistics rolling to sequence bats in these archives at Harvard, you know, the, the natural history museums that have bats that haven't been sequenced yet. We were going to go into those archives and sequence the bats to try to find it. And so that was an exciting project that was happening. And then COVID happened. You still, you still probably want to go back and do that, I, I bet, but given... given yeah, they, the people at MIT ended up doing some of that work, and it was really cool to see, because I kind of mapped out the bat evolutionary tree, and what are the major gaps that we need to sequence to try to look for this, 
Um, and they sequenced some of those major clades and they didn't find it. So that was, you know, we weren't, that wasn't conclusive. There wasn't an aha moment of here's the bat that had it. We didn't really get this clear answer of where VP35 came from or even how it evolved in bats. If this did come from an ancestral, if it's an ancestral filovirus to some mammal 65 million years ago, why is it flickering in and out in bats? Why isn't it just present in bats and telling this clear evolutionary story as a core gene in the genome? So, so that, that, supports, that supports the more recent introduction hypothesis then? It could, and we don't know. And there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's evolution can get complicated and we kind of have to keep our minds open for the many ways that evolution can work and things could happen in nature. And uh, yeah, so we didn't get the, the smoking gun, the slam dunk. It didn't, you know, otherwise that would have been a great I mean, paper. This is just the way science works, my friend, as you know. Exactly. We tried, we failed, and that was part of science. <laughs> okay, so uh, the pandemic hits. And you switch your research. You're you're a postdoc at Montana State, uh, working on this fascinating question about about the incorporation of a, uh, potentially ancient viruses or more recent uh, viruses into the bat genomes, um, an expression of these of these genes that allow these viruses to escape detection at, by innate immunity. The pandemic hits. It's probably a bat virus. Is how, how is that how you switched over? How did you switch over to doing what seemed to me like basic epidemiology? In fact, the, when I first saw your paper, Alex, uh, on the infl uh, influenza, uh, uh, the ILI rate, the influenza-like illness rate, um, I thought to myself, why is the why is there somebody in Montana State doing this? Why is the CDC not doing this? This seems like such an, a clear and, and obvious thing to do. I mean, really, something that's vitally necessary. I mean, you were stepping up where our Public health agencies were not. You know, I think uh, the reason we got that paper was probably because I was working with hedge funds. Um, the hedge fund I was working with, we were doing, I was doing alternative data analysis. So there's this whole market of alternative data sets of all the different kinds of data you can grab from the internet that you use to try to predict stock prices. But when there's a big event that could totally move markets, like a potential pandemic, a hedge fund might want to gain some insight into, is this going to be a pandemic? And so we were diving into that very early in January of 2020. And I was reading case reports and trying to very carefully understand this virus in order to give them an assessment on whether or not this would be a pandemic. And the two things that came up to me in, in late January 2020 that tipped the scales were the case study of um, transmission in Bavaria from a patient with unspecific symptoms which initially was presented as asymptomatic transmission, but more importantly for me, is just that they weren't obviously horribly sick of a, with something that has a 10% or at the time World Health Organization's 3.4% case fatality rate. Um, so that suggested something else could be happening. This virus could have different virological and epidemiological traits. So it could have a higher subclinical rate of people that are out there who are sick, but not knowing it or not sick enough to go to the doctor. That could lead to higher prevalence. So we, the next thing I looked at was how fast did this pathogen grow in Wuhan? And many people who studied this would fit growth rate curves over the whole outbreak in Wuhan. But if you look at the early growth rates in Wuhan, there's actually a very constant growth rate for many days. And then it starts to plummet. And so when you fit a flat line to this curve that is flat and then goes down, you're going to underestimate this initial case growth rate. And that mm. initial case growth rate is key we're helping us trace back in time to the very first patient and estimating how many cases have grown from that patient. So, so back then, when did you think the pandemic started? 
roughly? Um, there were reports of patients, you know, the reports of a December 4th patient that was corroborated by an uptick of the use of the word SARS and Weibo. There was reports of a November 15th patient even. Um, and there weren't real reasons to, you know, believe or disbelieve those, but they were possible. And then one of the interesting things that happens is if you start an outbreak in Wuhan on November 15th, and it, you use the initial case growth rate estimate, which is about 2.4 day doubling times, which is much faster. Most epidemiological models at the time were estimating cases doubled almost once a week or every 6.2 days. If they're instead doubling every 2.4 days, then you know by the time, instead of having twice as many cases or you know three times as many cases at the end of the week, you're gonna have almost eight times as many cases. Things grow much faster. There are many more patients in Wuhan if you started an outbreak on November 15th and had 2.4 day doubling times, you would infect most of Wuhan. You would have reached herd immunity by the time cases peaked in Wuhan. And so this was an alternative possibility that was worth considering. We didn't have full confidence in it, but it was possible. And if it was true, then we might expect similar high prevalence in Wuhan to have led to earlier introductions in the U.S. and then have a similar fast growth rate of cases within the U.S., so by February, we started to have forecasts suggesting there could be a surge in New York City by March to April of 2020, that these highly connected hubs in the, in the U.S. might be seeing these waves sooner than people expected. And when most models, even then, they didn't think there was community transmission in the U.S., we kept that possibility open. And that's when I started looking for alternative data sets that could help us see, help us look for that and monitor it. So we set up, you know, dashboards of, you know, search terms around the world of places that are closely connected to Wuhan's airport. And we also set up these dashboards of, of syndromic surveillance systems to try to monitor and see, do we get any corroboration of this faster growth, lower severity hypothesis that we came up with in late January? Sure enough, we did. That's what we found with the CDC's data in March of 2020. Um, and I even presented the theory of a faster growth, lower severity to the CDC forecasting group in early March. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't this like, wow, wonderful job. It was more of like, I don't know if that's right. You know, this, I don't know, you might be underestimating the severity and you could trigger complacency and people could die. And so there's a lot of pushback against saying the theory that we were considering and we were considering with an open mind that it might be wrong, but we had to test it and put it on the table. And that was a theory that helped us pick up the influenza-like illness data. Yeah, I mean that's a that's fantastic. I mean that's basically how you do science, right? You you have a hypothesis, you 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 uh, try to figure out its implications. You look at like uh, parallel lines of evidence, um, and uh, and I mean I like to tell you it's it's uh, it's a little bit later where I where I, I had this idea that it was like might had to be more widespread than it looked like. Sometimes like mid February is when I had this idea, um, uh, but it was it the the I didn't really become convinced until. Uh, the the antibody study that I did. I mean, of course, we we're all influenced by the, the science that we all, we we ourselves do. But it 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 really did help to have a parallel line of thinking that's separate and distinct, telling very very similar stories. Yeah, um, I remember your zero survey, the zero surveys from you know Santa Barbara, and all those those were just critical because that was exactly the kind of data we were we couldn't collect, but we were desperate to know. And the fact that you all were doing that work was just essential and really valuable and contributed to our thinking as well. Now, um, I, I don't know if you want to, I don't know how too much you want to get into this, but I do know that uh, as a result of your work, 
you were a postdoc at Montana State at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, postdocs are, I mean, uh, you're, you're preparing potentially to be a faculty member or some other some other position like this. It's 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 a in a way a precarious time. Like if you're doing independent work, you're usually you're working underneath some professor, and you work at the at the you know if the professor doesn't it doesn't like you, you could be in trouble. Um, can you tell uh, tell the audience a little about what happened as a result of this? I mean, because it seems to me like you were doing absolutely vital work in the, the beginning of the pandemic to try to inform public health better about what was the nature of the epidemiology of the disease. And in fact, I think you were absolutely right in, in the conclusions you reached. I, I don't know about the November 15th date, yeah. but that the early, certainly the early spread. Um, what, what, what happened when you presented your work in Montana? Or what did you, did, uh, did, uh, please tell the audience about that. Cause it's, oh, it's, man. it's kind I of mean, a sad story. Same stuff everyone saw. Like, so Johnny Anitas wrote that, you know, your, your colleague from Stanford, Johnny Anitas wrote the, um, the article is saying there's a lot of uncertainty about how bad this can be, and we're, you know, pursuing policies that may have risks. And he, the same pushback he got, which was being called out a great deal and being told he was minimizing the pandemic or he's disrupting the public health message, or he might trigger complacency, and that complacency could lead people to not properly mitigate the risks of the disease and and get hurt and and, and die. And so. There was a lot of understandable caution that people said there is an asymmetric risk that if you overestimate the severity of the virus, well, then, you know, if it's not as bad, that's great. You were cautious. Everyone was cautious. But given that we were enacting policies that were risky, that carried some potential to harm people, for me, I saw it more as a world of competing risks. And we needed to get the estimate exactly right. And that my job as a statistician was to estimate the point, you know, to hit the target right in the middle and not bias above or below based on how I perceive the public or how I think the public might perceive it or some intended policy at the end of it. So that was not a very popular you know, way for me to do science, but I stand by it as kind of the right thing for me to do to contribute to this broader deliberative community that we're a part of. And yeah, so we got told that we could be responsible for the deaths of millions, that we could be, you know, not by not by just random anonymous accounts on Twitter, but by high follower accounts of people who were professors at Georgetown University, or, you know, there were some professors who kind of threatened to not write letters of recommendation for me. If I had gone forward with this work, it, it could be picked up by Fox News. And if Fox News picks it up and it triggers this massive, you know, outpouring of complacency that people stop caring, COVID is minimized, I could be responsible for deaths. So when you hear that kind of language from people, it's very threatening. You know, it's not just this, you know, I disagree, you know, and I could, someone could feel threatened by someone disagreeing with them, but this is actually like, you could be responsible for millions of deaths. That's a very strong thing. I mean, but the the problem is like, uh, if you are a scientist with integrity, you have to say what you believe to be true. Like science requires the assumption of good faith. Not assume, I mean, I have to assume that you're not trying to manipulate people and, and fudge your results in order to manipulate people. I mean, then we, there's no way to do science in the context of of, of, a, of a, an ecosystem like that, right? I you, completely agree. And I think the best thing we can add as scientists is our independence and careful consideration of everything. You know, as long as we're not like being willfully biased or having horribly motivated reasoning, someone who's independent and thinking a little differently and doing things differently, to me, adds value. You know, is your zero surveys that I was like, oh, that's really cool. That's certainly, you know, and yeah, there's questions about what's the false positive rate. And we try to get to the finer estimates with 
more I mean, data. Yeah, I mean, like scientific discussion, of course, is going to yeah. involve disagreement. There's nothing wrong with that. But bullying, especially for someone like I, I, I saw what was happening to you, Alex, at the time. And I, I was facing my own challenges. But I, I have to say, I, it, was, it, was, it just struck me as so completely inappropriate to go after a postdoc uh, to say, look, uh, I'm going to threaten your career just because you did a piece of science I don't like. That is just not right. I mean, that, and what it, and it does is it sends a signal to every other scientist who doesn't have a position of power, even those who have positions of power, that we could come after you. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's important for scientists to be aware that their words are heard by many people and that public executions and character assassination attempts or, you know, accusing someone of immoral conduct without some very grounded reasoning or kind of, you know, cautious language, especially, um, that's very, I don't know, that's not cool. That doesn't feel good on the receiving end, but that's also very damaging to our, you know, what we need is more inclusive behavior to be able to encourage participation from scientists who have different views, because it's those different views that advance science in the first place. So if we become, you know, have this reaction to people who are thinking differently, then we're going to just think the same. And if we're thinking the same, we're not doing science anymore. And so for me, there's also this component of just being a more inclusive scientist. And with that, just putting away the cudgel and never using it except in very extreme circumstances and focus on the argument that people are saying, the evidence, the estimates, the data, and the stuff that's on the table there. You know, that's what I would have liked to talk about. In fact, this actually happened with the ILI study. We tried to estimate the number of people that were infected with one particular method and someone who I'd never heard of before, they weren't an epidemiologist, they were just a smart person on Twitter. They pointed out that if you applied our estimate to another category of disease, it overestimated the number of people who were sick. And we were like, that's a very good point. I think you're right. And we think we are wrong. And so we corrected our estimate to make sure that these numbers would line up and we would have consistent estimates of the number of people seeking care in the US every year, for example. Um, so we stayed open to feedback and we really loved it. It was actually a great thing to have someone smart critique our work and focus on the work itself and not some anticipated policy consequence of the work. No, I, mean, I, I had that same reaction to the seroprevalence study. The, the, the first version of it, we, we had, a, we had a, 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 an error in how we calculated the standard error, the standard estimate, right? Um, and um, we, so we, I mean, we corrected it within a week, but it was like a lot of really helpful people were pointing out, okay, here's how you, here's another way to calculate the standard error that's more robust. Um, and the other thing that that I uh, that, that came out of releasing the paper early for me, this this early seroprevalence study, finding, you know, this high high prevalence rate in Santa Clara County and LA County uh, in early 2020, was uh, that a whole bunch of people, other people, the, other, the independent labs had been examining the test kit that we were using. And they had done independent tests of the false positive and false negative rates, which were absolutely key parameters to understanding whether the estimate we were going, whether, you know, how, to, how to adjust the estimate we were getting to, to, to recover the true uh, prevalence rate. And so they shared with us, with us you know, I, I mean, this is how science works. Like, I didn't know about them. I would never have known about them because they hadn't published these results. But when we, when we uh, put out our result, a whole ecosystem of scientists offered us their help, their suggestions, their corrections, and the science got better as a result of it. I, I mean, to me, that was like, it was fantastic. But at the same time, I was also getting bullying. I was getting uh, vicious attacks, these questioning my, 
I, I mean, there were like press attacks against my wife and family. There was like n- really nasty attacks at, 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 uh, at you know, where I worked. Um, so completely outside the bounds of what a, a healthy scientific ecosystem looks like. It was essentially like trying to send a message, you know, you, you shouldn't be working on this. You got the wrong answer. You should not be working on this. And even though we didn't get the wrong answer, we, I think we were right. But that's another, that's another matter. Yeah, I feel like we really went through the gauntlet and saw the good, bad, and the ugly. You know, and the good was just when people were giving us feedback, even if it changed our estimates. And we love that. And the fact that you were receptive to it and I was receptive to it just underscores the good faith that we had entering into these scientific discussions. And I saw that very early on in your work and John's work and Sunetra Gupta's work and others, that there were a lot of good faith scientists who were coming up with new and different ideas and they were responding very intelligently. And that was really what I loved. And I focused on that to kind of block out the bad and the ugly for the most part. Okay. So let's move forward a little, uh, and, uh, in, in time. So we, we, uh, we have the, 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 the pandemic wears on. And, um, of course there's a real question about how did the pandemic start? It was at the heart of your work. Actually, it was the heart of my work too, in some sense. Like the start date of the pandemic really matters because you want to know how fast the disease is spreading, which in the mathematical models then tell you also how, how deadly it is. Um, it, these, these, are, these are vital parameters to, in order to uh, design the right uh, response to the pandemic. If you don't know these parameters, you have no hope. Um, so, but, but then like knowing how the pandemic started then tells you the date. It, it tells you the nature of the disease, and of course, during in 2020, uh, the, the 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 official story about the start of the pandemic is that it's it's a spillover from a bat, uh, just like the other viruses that, that you were studying that are that, that can be found in bats. May, there, there's there's worries about whether that uh, bats, which may be you know million breeding grounds for uh, viruses that might be able to infect humans. Maybe that's the reason why. In fact, that's the primary theory. Uh, the the virus start uh, the, the 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 pandemic starts in Wuhan, China, uh, and almost immediately there is a p- pointing to uh, a a wet market, a, a place where live animals, uh, including bats, are sometimes sold for food and other other purposes in in um, in Wuhan as the primary source. Um, I'll tell you though, at the almost uh, almost immediately a- after the pandemic started, maybe uh, in fact, right, right around the time, of, uh, just a little bit before the Santa Clara study, I'd been in touch with some uh, molecular biology friends of mine who were telling me that this didn't look like a virus that could have been produced by evolution. And now I don't, I'm not a molecular geneticist; that's not my specialty. So I'm, the, and I was already in the midst of too many other controversies. So I just. I, Packed that in the back of my head and said, "Okay, maybe maybe later we'll figure this out." Um, uh, so I, I didn't say much on this, but like it was it was striking to me that there was a disjunction between the private and the public conversations that were happening among molecular geneticists. The public story is that this is certainly near certainly a uh, a natural spillover from um, bats to 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 humans via this wet market. And um, and and then that's and that's the cause, and so and it starts in like some some mid December 2020 or whatever, late December 2020, um, or 2019 rather, uh, and and that and and that's that's the and if you, and then then there's this private conversation among molecular geneticists saying, you know, I don't know, this might not be the cause that looks it doesn't look like a natural virus, uh, like it just there's there's some features of the virus which we'll talk about in just a minute um, that don't look like that evolution could explain. 
and if that's true, and of course there's there's a there's also a uh, a virology lab nearby that happens to work on bat viruses uh, in Wuhan. What are the right? odds? What are the odds of that? <laughs> right. So so uh, but the, the the thing I want to focus on here is this disjunction between the private conversations that scientists are having, a vigorous one about whether this was or wasn't a virus of natural origin. This is early 2020 versus the public picture where uh, it's not just that you 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 if you say that it might not be of natural origin uh that, that you're, you're you're not just saying that you're a scientific hypothesis you're you're a conspiracy theorist you are in fact you're you're likely a racist conspiracy theorist who's like uh threatening chinese americans with violence because they're because what if it's if it's somehow if it's lab made then it's china is bad but if it's a wet market because of cultural practices and that then the china's fine i mean that, that that story didn't make any sense but it was really clear that there was a there was a a a, a, a like a, if, if you will like a, like in base i like I'm, I'm a baseball fan so like you know a, a pitcher throws a a, fa a fastball high and inside to warn the the batter to get off the plate right to back up right that's what that was that's what it looked like to me. You know, I love what you've done in terms of connecting the discrepancy in the public and private debate in these two different scenarios of the COVID outbreak forecasting and the public health policy, as well as the pandemic origins, because they were very similar. And I think you and I were both in the same boat of, you know, out of the goodness of our hearts, this was a pandemic. And we really needed to minimize the harm that the world felt as, you know, conditioned on there being a pandemic. So I was like you, absorbed in the triage of outbreak forecasting and public health policy for, you know, two years. So it was until mid, I think, yeah, mid-2022, that's when I started putting this all to rest. All the I did my last outbreak forecast for BA5. Um, you know, I kept involved for, I was on the paper studying Alpha, the first variant of concern, B117 in London. I did a punny IPO or initial phylogenetic observation analysis there. Um, and I did some other studies of looking at evidence of waning immunity before Delta. And so there's some findings consistent with waning immunity that preceded the Provincetown finding by the CDC, where they found the vaccine immunity waned. Um, so we had these early, this early evidence, but it was in an environment where the private discussions and the private evidence we had couldn't be shared publicly. Or if you did, it was discouraged by this sort of um, very intense dialogue and rhetoric that we were minimizers, that we were, you know, that I'm a far right Trump supporting libertarian for proposing policies that just just for the record for the listeners, I, I happen to know that you're that that you're not. So that I am not. That is correct. I my parents registered me a Democrat in utero. And so <laughs> but I love I love a lot of conservatives. I'm very kind of open to broader political discussions like most Americans, I feel. I think the the idea that there's this partisanship amongst day-to-day -day people, that doesn't exist in my life. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's where we were. And we were trying our best to use science to inform this discussion without totally monopolizing it and saying everyone must do what we need to do, you know, what we want to do, but just kind of provide the right scientific context. So then at the end of that, I put down the, the outbreak forecasting after BA5 and I had some downtime because I, you know, made a bunch of money on the stock market, trading on various strategies at every different outbreak cycle. And, you know, this discrepancy between the public and private discussions was key to my trading strategy development. 
if scientists knew something privately and there was some culture that prohibited that information from diffusing into the markets, well, then there might be something to trade on there that people are eventually going to learn this. It just won't happen right away. Um, so that inefficiency and in information diffusion in science was something I just decided I couldn't fight it as a postdoc at Montana State, so I might as well trade on it. <laughs> and after doing all that, I got to um, a position where I was able to just float down rivers in Montana and think about the things I wanted to think about. And one of those was, where did this thing come from? And that was when I really started engaging with the literature and reading you know, what people thought and looking at the genome myself to make this assessment. And immediately yeah, I had the same impression. This doesn't look like a natural virus. This is not the filoviral VP35 story. Um, we see the VP35 in bats. We have so many different genome sequences. So we can oftentimes identify where things come from genetically. Um, but this insertion looks very different because it doesn't look like it's a SARS coronavirus insertion. Coronaviruses although some of them have fear and cleavage sites, they're not that common. In the SARS coronavirus evolutionary tree, we have about a thousand years of evolution on this tree, and we don't see a single fear and cleavage site until this one that appears in Wuhan. Okay, so let, let me, let me, let me, uh, let's, let's postpone this discussion about the fear and cleavage site and the molecular genetics gotcha. for just a minute, because I want to, I want to set up, I want to set this up. You betcha. I set this up right, right? So, um, the the debate like the dis discussion so like the and i i think to do this we need to go back in time just a little bit to maybe so the, and i don't want to go too far back let's just go back to 2012 2012 in 2012 there was a paper published by a group uh a, a, i think a a dutch group uh with a, a, by a man named ron fouchier who's a very famous virologist and uh what he and he he had taken a version of the avian flu virus, a virus that has a very, very high case fatality rate in, in humans, but isn't particularly transmissible between humans. If you, you, you know, chicken farmers can get it from extended contact with chickens that are infected, but the chicken farmers generally won't spread it to their family members. It doesn't spread from human to human very efficiently. And uh, what this scientist in the Netherlands had done is he had taken this virus, which is not particularly transmissible among humans, and deliberately altered it so that it was more easily transmissible between humans. Yeah, and what he did is he, you know, he didn't insert something intentionally, but he just put it through a artificial selection pipeline whose end result we can reasonably expect will be a more infectious avian influenza virus. He put it, you know, it's, a, it's an avian influenza bird flu, and he infected a ferret. When that ferret was infected, he took some nasal turbinate and passed it on to the next ferret and passed it on to the next ferret. And that serial passaging is what he did to breed a virus that was better able to infect ferrets and with it, mammals. Um, and the expected result of that is clear. You're going to now have a virus that doesn't exist in nature that has been bred to be highly infectious in mammals. Um, and it's not clear nature would have ever found that or that would have ever happened in nature. So what was the value of this work? Given well, so, so, that, no, so now I, I saw a, a really interesting. OK, actually, let me, let me let me before I get to this debate, let me let me let me let me do, so do one more one more point. Um, uh, the, the, there's a it, now this this paper with this essentially this weaponized a, avian flu virus um, uh, is is this published in a very, very prominent journal. I think it was like Nature or Science or something. And um, there's a huge outcry in the scientific community that says, this is really dangerous. 
Like, you know, maybe it's knowledge, yes, in one sense, but it's knowledge that we don't really want to like, I mean, like there's some kinds of knowledge that in science that are really out of bounds. Like, do we know as much as we would know about nuclear bombs if we were allowed to test nuclear bombs over, over, you know, above ground? I mean, there's a, there's a, there, for very good reasons, there's a, a comprehensive test ban treaty that doesn't allow scientific investigation of nuclear bombs uh, above ground, right? There's, there are, uh, there are limitations on, on like, uh, on like, you know, what happens with the, with poison gases or something? Like, can we make them easier? Like there, there are, there are restrictions on certain scientific investigations just because it's deemed as too dangerous for the public to the public for these investigations to take place. Um, and of course, there's also some things that are like, you know, like you're going to, you're, you're going to make, it'll be more difficult to do just because it's scientifically, it's not that, is not is not the key thing but so the, so the argument then is exactly the question you asked alex why would you do this why would you do such a thing now let me let me make the let me let's steel man this let's do the other side of this um and i saw a debate between uh mark lipsitch who was the head of the the cambridge working group which in 2012 or 13 i think formed in response to this scientific work by ron fouchier saying this work is too dangerous to do these, these, this kind of work often leaks out these laboratories where you do the research are often leaky. Um, you can end up causing uh, pandemics that you didn't anticipate uh, as a result of the leak, the leaky lab work. Uh, you know, leaky lab work is there's no conspiracy. There's just like, you know, you're, you're sitting there pipetting and it's going to get boring and your the mask will slip and you'll get infected and then you'll infect someone else at home. And they'll just that's that's what a lab leak is. It's just human human. It's not like nefarious. Um, uh, versus, uh, I, I saw the debate was with this man named Derek Smith, who's a Cambridge, uh, University of Cambridge, uh, I think, virologist. Um, and what Derek Smith argued was that this knowledge that Ron Fouché had produced by his this work with, with the avian flu virus was absolutely fundamental to public health. By doing this work, it was clear that there weren't that many mutations needed to turn the uh, the wild type avian flu virus into a virus that could infect humans or mammals more efficiently and given that that's the case it's worth investing in vaccines for avian flu that otherwise we would never invest in because they they just infects chickens right um it's worth uh stockpiling uh countermeasures it it could guides public health policy to know that it doesn't take that many mutations to do this. So therefore, this kind of serial passage gain of function work is worthwhile to do for that knowledge. Yeah, and I think that we're getting close to that steel, steel man argument. I think they'd argue that, you know, this could also help evaluate the relative risks of different pathogens. So if you have, you know, 10 different pathogens that all have the same infection fatality rate, some of which have an easier time mutating to jumping into the human populations and would spill over more frequently, then those may be a higher risk, a higher likelihood of causing a pandemic, higher priority for vaccine development. Um, and some arguments even go, go farther to say that if we find the mutations that allow a virus to enter into a human population, maybe we can build vaccines against those mutants and those variants. Uh, maybe we can preempt pathogen spillover. And this was one of the concepts with um, DARPA's preempt program, which did not fund any of the gain-of-function research, but they they wanted to look at 
can we identify variants of viruses circulating in nature that are better able to infect humans? If so, can we preempt wildlife from ever getting that variant of virus? So there's a lot of there's a lot to learn about viruses and how they jump from one host to the next and what are the big bottlenecks in preventing jumping from one host to the next. And one of the biggest bottlenecks we found is receptor binding. And that's where the avian influenza study helps us understand that mutations in this the receptors, receptor binding um, toolkit for avian influenza allow it to jump into mammals. Um, so that's, that's, I think, getting to the steel man argument is that people say pathogens exist, they're spilling over all the time. We need to know which ones are likely to cause a pandemic so that we can prioritize vaccine development and further research. Okay, so, but in order to do this, you need to go out into the wild places, find uh, and sample mammals that generally would not come in contact with very many humans, transport them to places where you can study them, places like the Wuhan Institute of Virology, in places in the United States, places, you know, just, you know, you take the, you go to the bat caves of China and, and other wild places, you find these viruses and uh, pathogens, and you bring them to labs everywhere. Yeah. So to give an example for our, the DARPA preempt work we were doing, which didn't involve gain of function research of concern, we weren't mutating anything. We're just surveying what was found in nature. There were operations of people catching bats all over Africa, Southeast Asia, and Australia, and they would get samples and they would inactivate the viruses that are in those samples. And there's a lot of red tape and procedures to make sure the samples could be transported carefully for sequencing or viral isolation to study the viruses and figure out, are some of these variants in fruit bats in Australia more likely to infect people than others? So this is some of the part of that pipeline. And yeah, some people may go further and say, okay, great, now we found this virus from nature. Now, if we breed it in some way or mutate it in some way, we can study it further. And I think that's a step we didn't take, but that's the step where you enter into the gain of function research of concern. All right, so this, pre this preempt grant, this is something that you're working on as part of as part of a postdoc, as part of your own research, so you're like you're you're already in this world even before the pandemic, right? So you're exactly, you're already yeah. you're already, and, but you're you're not you're not doing the let's enhance the pathogens we find. You're just trying to survey the genomes of these these pathogens to see which ones are most likely to infect humans, and it, as it exists in the wild. That's exactly correct. And if we get some baseline of which viruses are out there and what genetic diversity is out there, that can also give us some information about what mutants are likely to come from nature and which ones are not. Um, so there's a lot of value in understanding which viruses are out there. But it's once you start taking a virus and putting it through environments, whether that's serial passaging or intentional manipulations and genetic editing, um, once you start modifying it in such a way that it could be expected to increase transmissibility or virulence, that's when we're entering a different world of risk because we're creating something that isn't found in nature. It's worse than something found in nature. And we're doing it in a lab that suddenly in, you know, adds all sorts of um, liability in addition to you know, moral risks and moral questions that we have to ask about, is it okay? Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's go back to my story. So 20, 2012, there's this advance. Um, there's a Cambridge working group that forms argues that this is too dangerous. This work is too dangerous. We ought to, uh, we ought to take, put more, more care into deciding whether to do it, maybe not do it at all. And in 2014, 
President Obama puts in place in the United States uh, a a pause on NIH support for gain-of-function work. And if I understand the nature of the pause, uh, it made it much more difficult to for the NIH to fund this kind of work, to get for scientists to get this kind of work funded through the NIH. Um, the, uh, the, the, the pause, it wasn't absolute. You could still get some select agent work done despite the pause, but it would require a sign-off from, you know, Tony Fauci and Francis Collins to say, this work is so important that it's worth the risk. Yeah, and I think there's some people who are in that battle much more than I was. I was a PhD student at that time, so I heard of it, and it was very tense and political, and I had opinions and read stuff. But um, but people like Richard Ebright and, and Mark Lipsitch were intimately involved in that. David Relman as well at Stanford. They were, you know, at the front lines of battle and arguing the ethics of this research, or is it ethical or not? Um, and yeah, they made very sound points. You know, things like if you take a virus in nature in 2011 and you mutate it and it creates a virus that's more transmissible and you make a vaccine against that, that's great. But the problem is a virus in nature will continue to mutate. So in five years, that vaccine might be obsolete and you might have to take the same risks again to make another vaccine. So if you do this process again and again and again, and if every country is doing it independently in its own labs to make sure they have their own vaccines, the systemic risks become huge. And if we're doing this for many different pathogens in many different labs, many different years in a row, then the odds are at one point in time, someone's going to make a mistake. One of these modified viruses will get out and cause a pandemic, and it will have, it could introduce a crisis in in science, you know, if scientists didn't properly regulate that work and citizens find out and they're not happy with what we did. So that's the argument made in 2014 and it wins the day, right? There's a, there's a pause mm -hmm. in the gain of function work. Yeah. And then um, in 2017, there was a change in definition, which said it's not gain of function research of concern. If you're enhancing the virulence or transmissibility of a potentially pandemic pathogen for the purpose of making a vaccine. And that's this process I told you about, where you're making a vaccine this year, but then you have to do it again in five years, as we were seeing with variant vaccines with, with SARS-CoV-2 and influenza vaccines that have to be made every year. If you do that with wildlife viruses every year, you're creating risks still. Um, and just the fact that you're making a vaccine is not the kind of assurance we might want from a program that's dealing with a select agent or a potentially select agent that could cause millions of deaths. Yeah. I mean, and, but in 2017, that change in the definition, that goes through. The NIH then is now all of a sudden funding again, is back in the business of funding gain of function. I mean, work to, I'll just be as precise as I can be, work to alter the genetics of viruses from the wild for the, for the purposes of making a vaccine. But the, the, the but the work itself is 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 in in is a is akin to the work that, for instance, the Fouché had done in 2012. It's it's enhancing the capacities of the virus or the pathogen to infect things that otherwise would not have been able to infect from the when it was in the wild to wild type form. That's exactly right, and it is accelerating evolution in a way that um, could let the virus make a jump evolutionarily that it wouldn't have made in nature. For a hundred years or more, um, so we're we're speeding or, things or up. Or never, or never, 
right? I mean, because yep. you don't, you don't, it depends on the particular environmental exposure, uh, environment that these viruses and pathogens face. Like they're, if they just face the bat caves of, of southern China and very, very few humans, why would it move in the direction of being able to infect human lung cells efficiently? That's exactly right. If avian influenza is so well adapted to birds and we're able to identify any initial humans or mammals that are infected to contain them, we may not have high odds of, you know, of an avian influenza pandemic. And in fact, we've known about avian influenza since the late 1990s and have not had an avian influenza pandemic, despite an entire globe of people with poultry farms, both intensive and extensive agriculture, people with ducks in their homes and more. And that hasn't led to an avian influenza pandemic. So, you know, yeah, it could happen in nature and we're concerned about it. But if we started doing this work in 1999, we would have had to replicate it many times to present. We haven't had a pandemic in that time window from nature, but we could have had one from this research. Okay. So 2017, then the U.S. is back in the business of funding and supporting this kind of, of, of research just to, to, to make pathogens found in the wild more transmissible to humans. Um, and, and, uh, you know, there's not just the U S like the, in the UK, there's like the welcome trust is also funding this. It's, it has a big impact on the world. Like we, um, in 2018, a, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a a proposal from a group that does this kind of work, a a group that's called the eco health Alliance that works very, it's an American group. I I think a nonprofit that works closely with lots of labs, but including the Wuhan lab in China, right? Where they, where they farm off a lot of the, a lot of this work. So the U.S. then, um, which has provided a lot of support for EcoHealth Alliance, um, uh, they, they, uh, they, 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 the EcoHealth Alliance takes the money and then gives some of it to, to, to do this, this kind of work in China. Because it's a natural place to do it, actually, because that's a major uh, lab that studies bat coronaviruses, um, in 2018, they they submit a proposal to a U.S. federal government agency called DARPA. Uh, what what is that proposal? Uh, that's that's come up a lot in these discussions. I think it's called Diffuse, right? Yeah, and this is actually where it gets personal for me too, is because I had helped write a DARPA preempt proposal, and Diffuse was proposed to that same DARPA preempt call. So I was in this field. I'd even gone to EcoHealth Alliance's headquarters in New York in 2019 before the pandemic. It was in early 2019, and so. This is kind of, this was the world I was living in before COVID. So I can tell you all about that call and, you know, what people were thinking, what other groups were doing, and what was unique about EcoHealth's proposal. So EcoHealth was run by Peter Daszak. Peter Daszak was this kind of, you know, mixed reputation in the field. Um, some people said, stay away from him. Don't go working with EcoHealth Alliance, you know, because they may take risks or cut corners. Um, so that was my first impression of them. And they proposed to DARPA in the Diffuse in the Diffuse grant that they're going to search for bat SARS coronaviruses in Southeast Asia. They're going to identify those that have a very high ability to bind human receptors. They're going to look for furin cleavage sites, or they said proteolytic cleavage sites, some ways, yeah, some of these toolkits for unlocking new hosts. Okay, so let me let, let's just make sure the audience understands. So, because the, 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 there's a lot of times when people hear the word furin cleavage, it's not doing molecular genetics or or molecular biology. That might be might just go past. But so this is a very very important thing. Um, the the way that viruses often enter your cells is by attaching to receptors that sit on the cell surface. 
right? Mm -hmm. They don't, they can't go, they, they can't like magically transport themselves through cell walls. They need a receptor to like sort of guide them, hold their hand, if you will, and then pull, push them into the cell where they can then replicate and do their thing. Um, the, the, the genetic uh, sort of code of a virus may or may not have kind of a key that attaches to some of the receptors. The furin cleavage site is, is, a, is, a, is a, a, a small, was like four protein long sequence. Four amino acids, yeah. Four, I'm sorry, four amino acid like sequence um, that, that allows it, the, 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 uh, the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID to uh, recognize and make friends with something called an ACE2 receptor on a human cell. Well, so back up a bit. The receptor, SARS-2 has a spike protein, and that can recognize the... So if this is your ACE2 receptor, and this is your spike protein, SARS-2 has a protein that can recognize the ACE2 receptor regardless of the furin cleavage site. But once yep. you bind on the receptor, you still have to get into the cell. And the furin cleavage site is a site in this spike protein of SARS-2 that allows an enzyme found in human cells to Furin. cut the protein and unlock it and allow the virus to enter into the cell more easily. And it's been shown that if you remove that furin cleavage site, SARS-2 loses its ability to infect human cells by, I mean, the viral titers go down 100 to 10,000 fold. So, 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 so this little four amino acid sequence makes it so that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is finely attuned to human cells that allows it to enter human cells in ways that if it didn't exist, it would be much more difficult to get in. Well, it actually allows it to have a very broad host range. The furin cleavage site is, you know, furin, the enzyme is found in many mammals. And so this is why virologists pre-COVID worried about furin cleavage sites. They've been documented in a couple of cases. MERS coronavirus, for example, has a furin cleavage site. And people think that may be why it's able to jump from bats to camels to people in the Middle East. And there's also examples of influenza viruses acquiring the furin cleavage site when they're infecting chicken farms. Now, we've monitored many other chicken farms, and even influenza doesn't always evolve this furin cleavage site, but it has been documented in rare cases, and it was very present in virologists' minds. And so a lot, a, lot of, a lot of virologists are thinking, well, if, if these coronaviruses, these bat coronaviruses evolve a furin cleavage site, they're going to become much more dangerous. We don't know for sure. This is 2018. We have to, we, we don't know for sure. Let's, and so EcoHealth Alliance proposes a, uh, to, to DARPA, let's add a furin cleavage site to a SARS uh, bat coronavirus and see what happens. Yeah, and more or less, what they said was they would look for some, and if they found some, then they would add that furin cleavage site to a high abundance strain so they'd take a more prevalent circulating bat SARS coronavirus and they would add the furin cleavage site they found in a rare strain to that more common strain and test it out. Well, this is strangely speculative. Like, you'd never documented it before. It's like, if I find a glowing green monkey, then I will take that glowing green monkey gene and add it to gorillas, you know? <laughs> and it's like, well, where are, you, where are you getting this? You know, there's no glowing green monkey out there. How did you somehow write a $16 million proposal on something that had, in theory, or at least at that time in the literature, never been observed before in SARS coronaviruses. It seemed very speculative. But, but, wait, yeah. Hold on. That's a really important point. There's lots and lots of uh, SARS coronavirus. There are lots and lots of like bat coronaviruses out there. 
How many of them have fear and cleavage sites? So yeah, there's a lot of spats. There's a lot of SARV coviruses or SARS coronaviruses. None of them have fear and cleavage sites. No, I mean, there, but there are other viruses that have them. There are but generally they're generally not. They're not like changing genetic material with these. If they did, then you would have seen them in some other cyberkovirus. Interestingly, Xi Zheng Li and other colleagues had identified fear and cleavage sites and things like feline alpha coronaviruses. So very distant coronaviruses in a different clade had been identified to have fear and cleavage sites, including the same four amino acid sequence that we see in SARS-2. Um, so this had been identified before in a very distant related coronavirus, um, distantly distantly related. So going back, you know, more than the, the evolutionary tree of SARS coronaviruses has a thousand years of evolutionary time in it without a fear and cleavage site. And then somewhere back beyond that, and on this other distant lineage of alpha coronaviruses, that's where you have some other um, fear and cleavage sites detected along with MERS and some others as well. It was a bovine coronavirus that was documented to acquire a fear and cleavage site. Um, and so it's not unheard of. It's not impossible. We can't say it's a zero probability event in Could nature. Happen. It's possible. But the strange thing is writing a proposal for something that had never been observed before in this clade. You know, it seems like, well, why not just, uh, I don't know, either document it and then say, hey, here's something we've documented. What if it gets into a more abundant strain? Um, or B, just leave that out and say, we'll look for things, but we're not sure what we're going to find. We're going to look for, in the DARPA call, look asked for jump capable quantity. So uh, I guess I guess then I was under uh, so the diffuse doesn't say we're going to add the free and cleavage site in. It said what it says it's it's not proposing directly to modify the virus. There it's proposing to go find them and then if they find it to do what with it. That's correct. And so that's kind of a strange you know a lot of scientists do a lot of work before the grant, right? There's a lot of um, prior work that leads up to and justifies the grant. And so, you know, an open question that would be nice if we had transparency from EcoHealth Alliance and the Wuhan Institute of Virology would be, have you ever seen a bat SARS coronavirus with a fear and cleavage site before COVID? How did you write this whole grant kind of centered around fear and cleavage sites mm. um, without ever seeing one before? You know, if they'd seen one before and they had it and they hadn't published it, that would make a lot of sense. They'd say, oh, well, we found these fear and cleavage sites. But, but it also makes sense if they'd, they'd already added. I mean, I, I uh, work from uh, in, in a soft money shop uh, basically my entire career. I know like the way the grant game works is it's you're much more likely to get a grant funded if you've already done some of the work that you're proposing in the grant. Because then it's very right. easy to tell, uh, to have a response to the reviewers that say, oh, you can't possibly do this. Well, you say, look, I've kind of already done done some of it. That's exactly right. And here's an interesting thing. EcoHealth Alliance, we now have emails from Peter Daszak writing to NIH and NIAID in 2016 saying, this is wonderful news. The gain-of-function funding pause on our research has been lifted. And we still don't understand what was that gain-of-function funding pause. This was for a grant understanding the risk of bat, SARS, bat coronavirus emergence. So what was NIH or NIAID funding for Peter Daszak? that was related to gain-of-function work. And we see a 2018 progress report where viral titers increase by 100 to 10,000 fold, which is about the same amount they decrease when you remove the fear and cleavage site. So what happened? What was going on? Had they done this work before, before they submitted the grant? Because then that would make sense. That would be the sort of preliminary work that would make it a stronger grant. 
So that's 2018. This diffuse grant. Uh, DARPA says no to this grant. Correct. DARPA says this is risky. You haven't ad addressed this um, risk of gain of function research of concern. There's no proper mitigation plan. They didn't want their hands on it. But yeah. EcoHealth Alliance had many other sources of funding, the NIAID grant being a critical one. Um, the NIAID, also, that's, that's Tony Fauci's uh, NIH fiefdom. Agency, the one and yeah. only. <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. And so interestingly, so this Diffuse Grant was a very unique collaboration of authors that had never published a paper before. Peter Daszak, Shi Zheng Li, Ben Hu, they had published a paper before. Then you also have Ralph Barrick and Lin Fo Wang. And, you know, this collaboration had altogether never written a paper. They just written Diffuse in 2018. In 2019, we now have emails that have been FOIAed by US Right to Know showing that these exact collaborators were on calls with NIAID discussing SARS coronaviruses. So what were they discussing in 2019 with NIAID, this collaborative collaborative group that had only been once before produced a document, Diffuse, proposing to insert furin cleavage sites in bat SARS coronaviruses in Wuhan? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so 20, late 2019, uh, in Wuhan, there's these cases of these strange respiratory virus, a respiratory condition happening really close to this Wuhan lab where EcoHealth Alliance proposed to do some of this work. Yep. Um, and uh, now, Alex, I'm going to ask you to take an imaginative leap. Put yourself in Tony Fauci's shoes or Peter Daszak's shoes, and you hear these reports. What's going through your head? Oh shit! You know, is this mine? <laughs> is this ours? Did I open Pandora's box? <laughs> Say that again. Did I open Pandora's box? Did I open Pandora's box? Yeah, we proposed to do this, and now here's the virus that has the fear and cleavage site that we were looking for in this grant. Um, a lot of things would be running through my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, Let's skip forward just a little bit again now to maybe January, February 2020. Um, there's these FOIA emails of this exchange between Tony Fauci, his boss, Francis Collins, Jeremy Farr, the head of the Wellcome Trust, uh, and others, uh, where they, they, they've gotten some reports from, from molecular geneticists suggesting that this might not be a natural virus. That's right. People see the fear and cleavage site. They look at a bat SARS coronavirus emerging in Wuhan, and they look at the high transmissibility, that fast growth rate that I mentioned earlier. That's evidence of higher transmissibility than SARS-1. So that's unusual. Why is this thing so transmissible right out the gate? Usually it takes time. You know, it takes passages until we get these mutations that increase transmissibility. So it's unusual that the growth rates started very high and stayed high and didn't start low and increase as more people have been infected. And in fact, there's an early paper by a scientist at the Broad Institute at MIT named Alina Chan documenting essentially like a very low rate of evolutionary change, much lower than you would expect than in a virus that had just emerged into a, a human population. Oh, and what's more, the receptor, the spike protein, there are many that, you know, if you go and sample all the bat SARS coronavirus spike proteins, they're going to be shaped differently. You know, so one species will be shaped like this, another like that, and one of them will be shaped well enough to be able to bind the human receptor very well. 
and SARS-2 is better able to bind the human ACE2 receptor than the bat ACE2 receptor. That's very unusual for a bat coronavirus. Okay, so um, there's this, there's like scientists starting to say, gosh, this might not be a natural virus. Uh, Tony Fauci uh, gets reports about this, and there's a there's a striking email where he's um, where where he's like essentially telling his underlings to like to 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 like prepare uh, a uh, prepare reports or prepare like some. It's unclear because a lot of it's redacted. What what exactly? But it's really clear he's alarmed by these reports. And the next thing you see is that um, he's talking to his boss Francis Collins, and they call up uh, the head of the World Health Organization who organizes a meeting where they discuss, is this natural origin or not? Yeah, there was a lot of emails happening there, and we still don't have the full picture of what exactly happened. But yeah, Christian Anderson and Eddie Holmes wrote to Dr. Fauci saying that they believed that this virus may have come from a lab. And they were prepared to present that evidence. They weren't 100% sure, but you know, I think Eddie Holmes was 80-20. Um, and... They were to discuss this with Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci then sent some other emails to understand what NIAD was funding and coronavirus work. Peter Daszak's name immediately came up, as did Ralph Barrick, who were both collaborators on the Diffuse proposal and who were both on the call in 2019 with NIAID um, on SAR talking about SARS coronaviruses with researchers in Wuhan. So there's a lot happening, and it's this flurry of events. And then there's the call. And we don't actually have a transcript of the call. We don't have a recording of the call. We don't know what happened. This is February 2020. February 2020. We have the Slack communications of Christian Anderson, Eddie Holmes, and their colleagues, Robert Gary and Andrew Rambau. And during the call, Eddie Holmes says, big ask, exclamation mark. Christian Anderson says, destroy the world with sequence data, yay or nay, <laughs> question mark. And then after that, they hop on a call. After that, Rambao says things along the lines of, given the political consequences of someone serious accusing the Chinese government of, of creating the virus, um, we should probably say that we don't have evidence of a lab leak. And so it's most likely of natural origin. Slowly, their paper shifts. And with the help of Jeremy Farrar, who helped them change some key language, the head of the call. national national uh, the Welcome Trust, which is kind of like NIAID equivalent. Yeah. He was the head of the one of the largest health science funders in the world that funded EcoHealth Alliance. Um, so they were connected, and so you can imagine the if you accidentally cause a pandemic, even a thirty billion dollar assets under management, the Welcome Trust could vanish overnight in the class action lawsuit. So there's some very serious liability here for the funders of this work, for the colleagues of, of researchers here. And who does Fauci bring on a call? You know, there were many virologists who could have evaluated this question, who could have looked at the data and had an independent opinion. There were people at the FBI who may have been the appropriate authorities to contact. The CDC director, Robert Redfield, he had opposed gain-of-function research of concern, or at least more clearly articulated the risks and not been wholly in favor of it. Um, I, I spoke with him, actually. I had dinner with him um, in 2022. And uh, he expressed to me his utter frustration is where where these kind these deliberations are happening in 2020, and he is not invited to these calls. He's I mean, not part of the conversation. The Center of Disease Control and Prevention he would benefit from knowing whether or not this is a natural virus, because if it's not a natural virus, we might change our expectation of how the epidemiological properties would look, how it would behave in the public, and what could happen, whether China, China 
is likely to be trusted in its case reporting and its story that it's telling about the virus and how we should prepare. And so to not have the CDC director looped in is strange, but guess who he does invite on the call? In addition to Jeremy Farrar and Francis Collins, who Francis Collins had helped Dr. Fauci overturn the moratorium on gain-of-function research of concern, they invite Ron Fauchier, the person who serially passaged avian influenza and would be singularly responsible for rolling the snowball downhill if it did come from gain-of-function research. They also invite Christian Drosten, who would also sign, so there's the Cambridge Working Group that you mentioned, and there was a competing group that tried to just have like a counter-proposal. It was kind of like there's a Great Barrington Declaration, and then who are the people that tried to make a counter-declaration? What was that again? Uh, they're the, the the John Snow Memorandum people. And Ironically, John with Mark Lipsitch is one of the primary co-authors of it. Mark Lipsitch yeah. was on the Cambridge Working Group side in the gain-of-function work debate. Yeah, and Mark is a smart guy, and I respect his opinion, and scientists can disagree, and that's okay. Um, and this, you know, this competing, something similar happened after the Cambridge Working Group came to be. But there's this group called, they call themselves Scientists for Science. And if you read the language of Scientists for Science, they say things like, we need to tr protect the public health officials' integrity, and we need to, it sounded a lot like the COVID language of follow the science. Um, but effectively, they were saying, boys will be boys, let scientists do science. <laughs> and so they were Scientists for Science. Drosten is part of this group. Drosten is a major science advisor to, the, to Germany. Uh, and he was pandemic. also a scientist for science. And guess who else is a scientist for science? David Morenz, one of the people at NIAID who was close, collab close colleagues with Peter Daszak. And Peter Daszak refers to him as his mentor. And, and actually, he Morenz had written previously with Tony Fauci about a, a, like a, a utopian vision for how to, how to keep the world uh, pathogen free. Um, oh, boy. I, yeah. So it, anyway, so there's, there's, a, there's this like a really interesting group of people that are inclined to think that we ought to be doing gain-of-function work that are called together. Exactly. And it's, Tony Fauci. it's so important we know the history. It's like, imagine if someone approached the EPA and said, I think carbon dioxide could contribute to climate change. And the head of the EPA brought on ExxonMobil and, you know, and other CEOs of oil and gas companies. You would look at the, the cast of characters there and say, that is a very biased assemblage of people. You did not talk to all these other independent experts within our own federal government. You brought in foreign nationals who were part of more or less an industrial lobby of scientists for science, which that name is just outrageous, but that was how kind of nakedly political it was. Okay, so so like let's look again, let's let's move forward back to 2020. Mm -hmm. Um there there's this like secret call. Um and the the this the, the few scientists that were that they that did come to the to come to the, the NIH and said, look, this might be gain of function work. Uh, it might not be natural origin. Uh, Eddie Holmes, Christian Anderson, all of a sudden they're singing a different tune, and they publish a paper in the Lancet called the Proximal Origins Paper. What what was that all about? So the Proximal Origin Paper was published in Nature Medicine. Nature Medicine. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's covered. No, it was yeah, the Lancet Commission uh, later. I, I got that confused. Go ahead. Well, yeah, there was the Lancet letter. That's another thing to talk about too. And the Proximal Origin Paper made a bunch of claims. And this is when I was getting into the COVID origins, this is the first paper I read. And I'm familiar with the field and the arguments that we use to understand origins and attributing viruses to reservoirs in the past. So I'm prepared for this. And they say things that immediately strike me as very weird. They say things like, 
ah, well, this receptor binding isn't optimal. You know, like, yeah, my fist doesn't perfectly fit into this hand, but they neglect the fact that it's better at binding humans than bats. And also, virologists work with suboptimal viruses all the time. If you took Ron Fauchier's avian influenzas, they would be suboptimal in the sense that no, nothing is ever optimized. That's an unattainable goal in biology. And if you did optimize it in some computer simulation of binding, that might not be optimal for the virus for infecting the cell because maybe it binds too tight and doesn't let go of the receptor. So that was a weird argument to make. And it was very clear that that argument is not a strong argument. And they go on further to say, ah, but it has this fear and cleavage site. Yes, it's this weird fear and cleavage site that was highly prevalent in virologists' minds and not very prevalent in coronaviruses, not found at all in SARS coronaviruses. And instead of evaluating the possibility that, okay, maybe someone inserted the fear and cleavage site in the lab, maybe they serially passaged something and the virus acquired the fear and cleavage site during serial passage. Instead, they say, ah, this insertion is out of frame, so it's illogical. But they miss the fact that that out-of-frame argument might just come from technicalities of how they align the genomes. And that a silent mutation, if there were some backbone for SARS-CoV-2 that was found in, that was in a lab and not published, and we don't know it, a silent mutation from the closest known relative to this backbone would suddenly change this out-of-frame alignment to an in-frame perfect insertion that virologists could look at. So that was a limitation. And there are many other limitations to their arguments. They seem to make a straw man out of lab words and scenarios. They assume that it's either a bioweapon or nothing or natural origin, right? But this middle ground is the accident of something like a diffuse proposal of people catching wildlife viruses that are not optimal for humans. They're trying to find out which ones are better for humans. So that's how you get good human receptor binding. Um, and then they insert a fear and cleavage site and yeah, so it was just a very strange, the end conclusion they made was that a lab origin is implausible. And that was, that's not really justified. And that was actually a word that Jeremy Farrar helped them put in and the word implausible. Because we, we, people have FOIA'd them. And so you have not just the word documents that they submitted, but like revisions of the word documents along with notes. Yeah. And Jeremy Farrar helping out and them saying, wow, Jeremy's done so much. He should be an author. In science, we call that ghostwriting. If I had ExxonMobil, just to kind of tap into the ethos of most scientists that see climate change as a threat, if ExxonMobil helped me write a paper saying climate change is a hoax, it's implausible that carbon dioxide could contribute to climate change, and I didn't disclose that ExxonMobil helped me write this, that would be ghostwriting. And that's a major research ethics violation. And Jeremy Farrar did that. He helped these people write the paper. He got them in touch with the editors of the journal so this is the head of a $30 billion fund that is coming down on the these editors. That's a very, like, there are imbalances of power in science. And so when you have someone up here opening the door at journals to get this paper in, that's not really fair. That's not, when people read the scientific literature, they're hoping that this is just natural bubbling up of ideas and a fair competition of different theories. Not the health science funders who funded Equal Health Alliance changing language and then helping get this paper in the door. So that was yeah, a of course it, it matters to Jeremy Farrar because he's he might get blamed for this whole pandemic. Like for funding the whole the, the research that led to the pandemic, it's a, a terrible stain on his reputation. It's not and it's not even a theoretical thing in the sense of uh, he's you know he just retired and left away. He's he's now the head scientific advisor of WHO. 
Yeah. And if I were to try to give him the benefit of the doubt, you could imagine he's thinking, oh, shoot, there's a pandemic. The last thing we need in the middle of a pandemic is more conflict and accusations that could lead to war while there's a pandemic happening. So I can imagine there's the ethics are, are more complicated. But as scientists, we kind of have to work within our boundaries of you don't do that. You could just instead not publish a paper or you could publish a paper honestly saying we don't know. And despite the fact they published the paper saying a lab origin is implausible, even months, you know, even during that time, Christian Anderson was saying the problem with lab origin is that it's, in his words, so friggin' likely. So that's dishonest. And we really expect honesty from science. We expect them to say, like, when I published the ally paper, I honestly believed it. And I was open to feedback. No one else helped me write it. <laughs> you know, it was just that was just me pitching in my estimate for the world to think about. Um, but that's not what this was. This was health science funders prompting it, bringing in very conflicted parties to argue with Christian and Eddie, um, ultimately leading them to change their perspective. Jeremy helping them tweak the language, opening the door at the, at the editors and the journals to get this paper published. And then once it was published, all these people promoted it from their positions of power. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like there's a, I saw an email from Christian Anderson or an email, a, a, a tweet or something from Christian Anderson celebrating that he got tenure on the back of having a nature paper. Say that again? He got tenure on the back of having a nature paper, like yeah. in the mid middle of this. It's, so it was good for his career, right? I um, mean, at face value, if your other colleagues in the department who are in different fields, you see, wow, you got this great paper, it, you know, was covered in the New York Times and elsewhere, and you're getting great press. Good job. You got funding from NIAID. The, Anthony Fauci was overseeing the signing in the approval of a grant for Christian Anderson at the time of that call. So he also had power over Christian Anderson. He could have said, you know, without kind of indicating why, no, this grant doesn't fit. Yes, it got high scores during review, but at the end of the day, we can only fund so much. We can't fund this grant for the guy who stuck with his guns and said this came well, that, That's happened to me. I've gotten like, I've, I've had, uh, actually, I have had both things happen to me at NIH. One where I had a really good score, and it didn't, for whatever reason, the the uh, priorities of the agency that I applied to said no, and then so I didn't get funded. And I've had the other direction too, where I, I got a, a okay score, normally not fundable, but it was directly within the priorities of the agency, and they it got so they pulled the grant up and it got funded. That's, like, that's exactly happened. right. And so that like when you look at this mess of conflicts of interest. <laughs> of Anthony Fauci overseeing a grant for Christian Anderson, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins having approved this overturning of the moratorium of gain-of-function research of concern, and both funding Equal Health Alliance, working on SARS coronaviruses in Wuhan, Jeremy Farrar funding EcoHealth, Jeremy Farrar ghostwriting, and then all of them promoting this as if it were an independent paper. Anthony Fauci was on national television, a privilege that he gets as head of NIAID, and he's saying, well, this paper came out by authors, I don't know who, but it's so that it's pretty conclusive this came from an animal. This is not a laboratory virus. And, and you have Francis Collins floating around saying, and there's emails to this effect saying, essentially, like, if if people think that 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 it was a gain-of-function work, then it's going to cause uh, a, a shame for, chi for Chinese science. It could cause international incident. It'll cause a shame to science itself. Yep. In fact, there was a Lancet letter in which Peter Daszak authored this letter to the Lancet, um, effectively saying that they denounce all lab origin theories as, quote unquote, conspiracy theories. 
and that these conspiracy theories could lead to prejudice, which is a different way of saying the racism call that came out more. And it's fair, you know, yeah, we don't want to just be lobbing accusations of people, but we can't call a theory, a credible theory, a conspiracy theory. One of the signatories of that letter was Jeremy Farrar, the same person who helped ghostwrite Proximal Origins. And we have FOIA emails in which Peter Daszak wrote his colleagues, co-authors of the Diffuse proposal, who also were on the NIAID call in 2019 to work with SARS coronaviruses in Wuhan. Daszak wrote those colleagues and said, what do you say we propose this letter? I'm paraphrasing. Let's propose this letter. And what if we don't sign it so it doesn't bring unwelcome attention to our collaboration? <laughs> so that's, he's actually conspiring to not sign this paper that he is organizing and hosting and writing, right? And he ends up signing it, but Ralph Barrick doesn't. Some, some people choose to, some people choose not to. Um, but he also doesn't disclose the conflict of interest that he was working with the Wuhan labs on bat SARS coronaviruses in 2019. And that's very important. Is this also, the, this is this Lancet letter, is this also the letter that uh, Jeffrey Sachs signs or is this something else? That is, I don't uh, think Jeffrey Sachs signed that. Okay, I, there was, I think there was a Lancet commission or something report where Sachs was involved. Sachs um, was overseeing the Lancet investigation into the origins of COVID. And he said, hey, Peter Daszak, this seems like a guy who would know what's going on. And so he appoints Peter Daszak. Peter Daszak appoints all of his close colleagues onto this committee that's investigating where did this thing come from. And Jeffrey Sachs was very clear. He said, does anybody have any conflicts of interest? Was anybody working with Wuhan Labs? And sure enough, he started to turn over stones and realize, wow, Peter Daszak, you actually proposed to make a virus just like SARS-2, yet you didn't recuse yourself from this investigation. Even people like Peter Hotez, who's running around calling everyone anti-science for just questioning or having different perspectives, Peter Hotez had subcontracted work to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, including to Zhu Yusin, a vaccinologist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who's mysteriously dead. And so all of these people have this mesh of, it, of, of collaborations with the lab under investigation in this case. And yet they're they're part of this big uh, investigation, this official body that, that the Lancet Commission put to, put together to to resolve this question. That's correct. And they didn't and the Lancet... themselves. They didn't disclose these, so Jeffrey Sachs could kind of evaluate it himself. They hid it from him, and so that was the thing that upset, from my understanding, that upset Jeff Sachs the most. Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, there, there's one other before we before we uh, before we conclude, I want I want to make sure you you get you get to t to say because you have one more paper. A really, really important paper for this debate that I think um, most people don't know about, uh, unless they're deep in the in this world. Uh, and I and I think it's I think it's important because it's not it's 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 an in, like we've been talking about how in science, if you have independent lines of evidence from different directions pointing at the same thing, you have more confidence than conclusion, right? It's it, it, there's kind of a, a sort of independent kind of replication, uh, but with from like different directions, you you you're more certain. Um, uh, we haven't gone through all the molecular biology. This is not because, you know, I'm not a molecular biologist, but I do think that this, this piece of molecular biology that you worked on, um, is, is quite an important thing. And so the, the, the story, uh, is that if this was an engineered virus, they're not doing the kind of serial passage through ferrets that they had to insert, you know, a site. If that, again, if the theory is right. They had to like molecularly engineer the insertion of a site. There are there are tools that molecular geneticists and molecular biologists use 
to do these kinds of insertions. And among these, and so you have to, you have a, a sequence of, of bases. You need, you want to cut them up into pieces so that you can more easily work with them. Right. Um, so can you, can you describe that? And, and if I've gotten something wrong, please correct me. Yeah, absolutely, Jay. So, you know, the, and even in the diffuse grant, they propose to um, work with these things called reverse genetic systems. So you have an RNA virus and RNA is single stranded in SARS. Coronavirus is very flimsy. It can break easily. And you can't really insert things because if you have this RNA in solution, it can easily break and it's complicated and difficult to work with. DNA, on the other hand, especially the double-stranded DNA, is very strong. And so you typically create a copy of an RNA virus in DNA. But how do you do that? It's 30,000 base pairs long. You know, it's not like a printer where we can just be like A-A-T-A-G-C. You know, we have to, I mean, we have printers that are able to assemble chunks. Um, but oftentimes we don't print out whole 30,000 base pair chunks. Instead, we print out smaller, you know, five to 8,000 base pair chunks, and we glue them together. And then we glue these things together at these very specific stitching sites that are found, often found in the genome. And so we studied the past work. How did people make these things? They're called infectious clones and reverse genetic systems. How did they make these things before COVID? Because this was the methodology that Diffuse proposed. So the way you do it is you have these chunks and you have these special enzymatic cutting sites that are in the genome. And when you're assembling it, you try to get these cutting sites more regularly spaced because then it's less work. Um, and you typically try to have five to eight segments so, of so DNA. Just, just, to, just so I can like make sure everyone's like can, can follow you. So again, you know, that I'm not a molecular genetist, so I can stand in for the audience on this. Um, when you say cutting sites, what you mean is you, you have a, a sequence of base pairs that a, a, gene, a, a DNA would have. Like you're using, where you're working on DNA because it's easier to work, work with than RNA, even though it's an RNA virus. Uh, you have a DNA copy of it. Um, they have base pairs, A, T, C, G, whatever it is, right? All of, all of the, 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 the normal lettering that you'd have. Um, the, the, the genetic scissors cut at specific sequences. Yep. Right. So if you have an A, I don't, I don't know the letters. I've never worked one of these myself, but like whatever, whatever the like three or four base pair sequence. Um, one example is CGTCTC. CGCTC. It just exactly. strips off your tongue. Um, so, so you have, you have, a, you have, so you have a, you have a enzyme that cuts wherever it sees that six base pair sequence. Yeah, exactly. And so you have this chunk of DNA and the enzyme will recognize the sequence and then it'll cut it and typically cleave it in a way that leaves a sticky end. So now we have this double-stranded DNA and one strand has these base pairs that are exposed. So you take another chunk and you cut it and then you can connect these dots here and that's how you can connect these adjoining segments of DNA. And, and so now the, like the, the sequence, that's like take that six-letter sequence, you have, you said 80,000 base pairs, who knows where those that six letter sequence shows up? It could show up, uh, you know, every every one hundred things, or it could show up just completely randomly. Sometimes five thousand base pairs later, sometimes one thousand base pairs later, sometimes a hundred base pairs later. Right? That's exactly right. So these enzymes that do the cutting, they're found in nature, but they're found inside the cells of bacteria. So a SARS coronavirus that infects bats or humans is never going to get inside a bacterial cell and then have offspring after that. So there's not really selection for SARS coronaviruses to evade these sites. So it's a well, I mean, the SARS coronaviruses are RNA viruses in nature. They're 
they're acting like RNA, they're generally not turned into DNA. That's correct. Yeah. So why would they be selecting for evading these kinds of molecular scissors? Exactly. So the the hypothesis from like thinking about the ecology of these viruses and the historical evolution, kind of like we were doing with filoviruses earlier, we wouldn't expect there to be any regularity in where these sites are found in nature. So in wild coronaviruses, we expect them to be randomly spaced. So the number of these cutting sites and the spacing between them is going to be random. Um, but we looked at how people did this in the lab. And when they did it in the lab, we could see these sites, especially for the most popular enzymatic scissors on the market, they would be shifted around with silent mutations, very subtle cuts, you know, changes from an A to T here or C to G there that add one of these sites or remove one of these cutting sites in a way that gets us more regularly spaced cutting sites. And the reason for the regularly spaced cutting sites is just it just makes it easier to deal with. It makes it easier for you to manipulate, to add a furin cleavage site, for instance, to, add, to, to, to some one of these things. That's exactly right. You can store the segments of DNA separately, and then I can work just on this little segment, and that'll be a little bit easier than working with the full-length genome. Um, or you can construct the full-length genome inside of a big, what they call a bacterial artificial chromosome, and you can work with it in there. But it gives you all these options. So now you can work with this. You can add a furin cleavage site. You can even swap spike genes. And this is what they did, Peter Daszak, Xi Zhengli, and Ben Hu, in 2017. They published a paper with a reverse genetic system of a bat SARS coronavirus swapping spike genes. And in order to do that, they had to have this full-length DNA clone. And so that's why we looked at this method and said, asked the question, does SARS-2 have evidence of this method. So so you did a very simple thing, it sounded like. I mean, not simple, it's complicated. It's something I wouldn't be able to do. So not, but but when I when I read it, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that sounds like the, if you're a smart guy, this is exactly what you do. You applied the genetic, the, the genetic scissors commonly used in the lab for this kind of gain-of-function uh, kind of gain of function work uh, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Yep. And what did you find? It is a anomaly among wild coronaviruses in exactly the way it's consistent with a reverse genetic system. The spacing is highly regular. The longest fragment length is unusually short, which is one of the constraints. If the fragments get too long, trying to assemble a really long DNA fragment, it can be difficult to get this faithful assembly. So that's why people keep their fragments short, and that's how they get them regularly spaced, is by this constraint of long fragment length. So. SARS-2 has a very, for the number of fragments for these enzymes that were used, so there are two enzymes in particular, BSA1, BSMB1, and they had only been used together once before in the history of coronavirus infectious clones that we found in our meta-analysis. And that once before was in, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2017 <laughs> to swap spike genes. So this had only been used once before by Ben Hu, Peter Daszak, and Xi Zheng Li, they use them for slightly different methods in that paper, but they have these enzymes available. So, the, so the, the, there's there's a history of this group using these molecular scissors for similar work in the past. And and when you apply to this, this SARS-CoV-2 virus, you get very, very evenly spaced clips. Now, um, how would you be able to tell that they're really evenly spaced? Like what if, what, what would happen if you apply the scissors to other, uh, uh, other uh, bat coronaviruses. What do you get? Yeah, well, that's what we did. We took all the viruses, the coronaviruses we could find on NCBI, and we cut them up with all these different enzymes that are out there on the market. 
to get a sense of the distribution of what happens when you do this with wild coronaviruses. And we use that to quantify the odds of seeing something as or more extreme than SARS-2. And so the odds of seeing something as or more extreme than SARS-2 are about 1 in 1,400, just in terms of the fragment length. But the pattern gets even more significant when we look at the mutations that separate these cutting and pasting sites in SARS-2 from the cutting and pasting sites and their close relatives. Because when engineers look at a viral genome, they're like, ah, these aren't evenly spaced. Get rid of this one, add one here, get rid of this one, add one here. And they do all those additions and removals with silent mutations. And so we looked at it and all the, these restriction sites that separate SARS-2 from its close relatives that have either been added or removed have been, done, have been added or removed with silent mutations, exclusively silent mutations. And then we said, okay, well, I don't know, silent mutations are common because a silent mutation doesn't change the amino acid sequence of the protein. So evolution prefers or selects for silent mutations. Um, so then we asked the question of, is there a higher concentration of silent mutations per nucleotide within these sites than the rest of the genome? And that's where we found our most significant signal by far. Relative to RATG13, the coronavirus that the Wuhan Institute of Virology released in January of 2020, saying this is the closest we've got, there are eight times, eight to nine times the rate of silent mutations within these restriction sites in the rest of the genome. So we picked 60 base pairs based on this fragment, based on which restriction sequences, you know, the CGTCTCs, define these cutting and pasting sites. And we just get these short little windows where there's a CGT, CTC here, there's something like that here. And within this small subset of the genetic material, we find eight to nine times the rate of silent mutations than in the whole rest of the genome. And it was a highly significant finding with a p-value on the order of 10 to the minus eight. So that was our most significant finding. And that's a, that was something that was predicted from the synthetic origin. And we had done the proper hypothesis test to look at it. Um, so that's really where we think that we found some of the strongest evidence consistent with the laboratory origin and a very specific research pathway too. Yeah. So like, I mean, cause so I've, I've, I've read some of the, the pushback online by some, you know, well-meaning scientists, like who, who they're, they're like, well, that some of them think that the, it's still possible that, uh, you would see this pattern of of of, uh, of of sort of evenness of clip sizes and even potentially even the silent mutations. What, uh, although I don't really understand how you could get the silent mutations given the probabilities that you've you've uh, you've seen. Like what's what's the what's the the steel man pushback on this that you've received and how 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 do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's a several arguments that are that I, I see as a real steel man arguments against our paper, or at least as a, a limitation. And we put these limitations in our discussion of our paper, because that's kind of who we are. We realize that we're, we're scientists. I mean, we, we, exactly. we may be right when you may be wrong, right? This isn't the end. We didn't find dispositive evidence of anything. We found evidence consistent with, and we contextualize it. 10 to the minus problems. eighth, my friend, that's pretty close. I mean, if you're right, that's pretty dispositive. It's very unlikely then that you would have found this in nature. That's right. We, pattern nature. So we documented our methods and how we arrived at it. There's reproducible code on GitHub for people to see exactly what we did. Um, but it's still possible people could say maybe you just got lucky. And we would we quantified how lucky that is under one model of evolution. But it's possible there's some subtleties there. Like one strong argument that we heard is maybe these particular sequences for these enzymes, like CGTCTC, are more prone to silent mutations. 
but are they eight to nine times as prone to silent mutations? That's a lot. I don't know. And so this is an open question. I think that would be a very strong follow-up paper is if someone looked at the concentration of silent mutations within these BSA1, BSMB1 restriction sequences, um, restriction sites. But why, I mean, like evolutionarily, that you'd have to tell a pretty funny story. You can imagine, I, you know, the which codons, so the, you know, the codons are triplets of nucleic acids like ATG, ATC, which of those codons can map to a neighboring codon, you know, be mutated once and have a silent the same, mutation? same amino acid. It's possible that this, these sequences just have more silent mutations in close proximity, or maybe the kinds of mutations that are likely to happen just perfectly happen to give us a higher... But the, I mean, that would have to be like, basically, it's just luck. Because uh, it, it can't yeah. be that the molecular scissors are selecting for this in nature. The molecular scissors don't cut RNA. They don't. And so it would have to be something else that we didn't anticipate. Um, or that, you know, it could be something like this, you know, maybe C to G mutations are very common, right? And maybe C to G mutations tend to be silent. And maybe these sites happen to be exactly in the right place where they have more C to G possibilities that, you know, could lead to a higher rate of silent mutations within these sites. And that would not, you know, that actually is independent of the the spacing, right? And so yeah. that's... You can add, so these are, that's why we, these two arguments of the spacing is highly regular and consistent with an infectious clone, and the silent mutations are highly concentrated and consistent with an infectious I mean, clone. I like the, the, the Occam's razor kind of thing, the simplest explanation is this was a reverse genetic system used to engineer the virus. That's yeah, the Occam's Incidentally, these, these are the enzymes that had only been used once before, and it was by people at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, including Ben Hu. Um, and Ben Hu was on a call with NIAID in 2019 as well. Okay, so um, uh, we have a lot of evidence then. Uh, how do you talk about this now in public? Do we know, uh, like, can, can you, like, I've seen people like Alina Chen and uh, Matt Ridley and others, Matt, they, they move slowly in the direction, especially Matt Ridley, in the direction of saying, look, we're, we're pretty close to this is dispositive now. Um, that it was actually a uh, that that this virus this 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 pandemic was caused by a lab leak. Um, uh, I, I've also seen like you know you can you can argue about whether a lab leak is likely, but you don't even need to do any fighting over that. Like you, for, in 2021, there was a lab in Taiwan, I think a BSL three lab in Taiwan that was doing work on the SARS CoV two virus. 2021, you know, this is after things have been out for a while. Um, and it's documented that the virus leaked out of this lab in Taiwan, this BSL-3 lab, causing a little local outbreak when there wasn't very many cases around. So well, it's not a theoretical matter. Oh, not at this... all. So there, hmm? were, there were over six SARS-CoV-1 outbreaks before SARS-2. One of those was the natural outbreak in 2002. The others were lab accidents in China. Um, there was an accident in the Netherlands where they suddenly started seeing polio in the wastewater. And that polio went to a strain that was found in a lab within that same part of the Netherlands. And they were able to find the researcher who had an asymptomatic infection. So it happens. It happens in low-income countries and high-income countries. Anywhere this research happens, it, you know, there are risks. And I think that if you had some prior based on documented SARS coronavirus outbreaks, 
you would have at least a five to one odds that this would be a lab leak, especially given that it's found in Wuhan, you know, and not, for instance, somewhere closer to where these coronaviruses are found in nature and with a wider animal trade outbreak. Okay. Um, <laughs> excuse me. So now that we have, um, now that we're here, it's uh, four years on. Tremendous amounts of damage been caused. Obviously, you know, millions and millions of people have died from COVID itself. Uh, the 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 virus led to kind of like dominoes falling, a sequence of policies that themselves have caused tremendous damage. The lockdowns devastated the lives of a tremendous number of poor people, including, you know, star starvation on on a, on a scale that's generally only seen in war. Uh, you, you you have children who've been robbed of education for years, especially the poorest of children in poorest, in the poorest countries. Um, you have uh, censorship with, with, with scientists arguing for censorship in, at a mass scale, damaging our democracies. Um, you have huge numbers of people that have uh, got skipped basic preventive care. You see a, you've seen a collapse in comp public confidence in vaccines. Um, resulting in the the resurgence of some vaccine preventable diseases in, in, in places where explicit decisions were made to ignore those kinds of vaccination efforts uh, in favor of COVID pre prevention, which didn't work. Um, huge, huge, huge amounts of damage. Um, and uh, you have, it seems likely to me, given what uh, given what I know and given the evidence we discussed, that this was a human caused event. This wasn't this wasn't just a natural origin thing. What needs to be done next, Alex? What what? Because it seems to me like we have to we have to work to make sure this never happens again. It's too costly. It's too risky. And if you thought that that we could use this kind of technology to prevent pandemics, well, we have to weigh that against the the potential harms of the of the pandemics they might themselves also cause in the future. I think that's a big question, right? What do we do next? And there's a lot of things to think about. And, you know, there's a lot of moving parts here. There's certainly as a United States citizen and in the United States, what do I want next? Um, we need some assurances that our taxpayer dollars are not going to fund highly risky research without very strong, extremely strong assurances that we don't have these accidents. And so we need to first start with the assurances that this doesn't happen on our watch. Can, can I say, Alex, one thing about that? Mm -hmm. I, I don't trust any of them. I mean, I don't do virology. I, I don't trust any virologist at this point to tell me, oh, yeah, I can do this safely. Unfortunately, yeah, I think it, they would benefit from civilian oversight. If you think about, you know, we have civilian leadership, the president as the commander in chief of our military. And there's value in that because then there's democratic accountability for a president who does the wrong things. Um, and that way we also don't have, you know, generals that become kings. You know? And so there's ways to kind of set up oversight, civilian oversight of, of institutions that are doing things that are highly relevant for national security. For instance, there are, um, I mean, a virus, an outbreak, we saw how COVID had a major impact on national security. There were, you know, war fighters were getting sick and people were getting sick. And there was, you know, significant unrest and people were, many people were not happy. It created so divisions. There's so many things about this. I mean, not just people dying and the morbidity and mortality, uh, but even from a national and global security standpoint, 
This research is extremely risky, and anyone who gets caught with their hand in the bucket faces some liabilities that might be too big to bear. So I think we have to really think about that from a perspective of potential accountability. Do we ever want to do this? Now, the problem is there's also things like Russia and North Korea. They have, um, it's been it's been discussed in public, they had have biological weapons programs, and the State Department has indicated, and I forget the exact language, but even they have, the United States has pointed to the Chinese government's past biological weapons work and not seen the sort of assurances that they need to have to be guaranteed that China is not still doing this work or that they're not so risked from their past work and stuff like that. So how do we live in a world with, you know, with some countries that are pursuing biological weapons? How do we defend ourselves against that? I think that's a very different conversation than the one that academic virologists are presenting, right? Yeah. They're saying, let us do this dangerous work to prevent a bat virus from happening, you know, from causing a pandemic. <laughs> but if we don't want to do that because it's not worth the risk from a bat virus perspective, we can focus on mitigation and early detection and countermeasure developments that don't require this sort of um, gain of function research of concern. And I mean, then it's, it's a discussion. Um, like if you're talking about it from a biodefense point of view, the most important thing is detection, right? Because if, if no, no, one, no country other than a, a very, very small number of you know, rogue nations are working on these kinds of systems, if you have a, a, a ability to detect, I mean, it seems like a terrible kind of bioweapon, frankly, to me, because like, how do you design a bioweapon that doesn't affect, you know, at risk your own population? Like you're just, it's just a very difficult thing, right? Um, but like, the, it, a very rapid detection and then essentially saying, look, that's an act of war. Yes. If you, so if you do US this, that review holds that the U.S. doesn't make biological weapons. We abide by the Biological Weapons Convention. Um, but the response to a biological weapons attack, um, the U.S. has nuclear weapons and it you know, that's the that's the response. So there is some deterrent. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't have to go to nuclear weapons immediately. I mean, the point is, it's an act of war. So we can we can treat it as an act of war and then manage it that way. Right. So the point is, like any country that's engaging in this kind of work that results in, uh, you know, uh, a, a pandemic or whatever it is, uh, or use of these weapons, they're going to be treated as a, as if as an enemy of the United States. No country really wants that. Yeah, that's I mean, a, that's the way I see it, it's, kind of, it's also kind of like the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. If we get, if we foster global coordination on um, cooperation to not do this kind of work, <laughs> then it's yeah. much easier to identify people who are doing it and single them out for potential isolation, for being able to say, hey, you're taking risks that the rest of the world is not comfortable with. That would be so much easier if we didn't have academic labs lobbying to do this work in the most distributed possible fashion of every country everywhere and every lab doing what they want, you know, and, and, and basically not just doing this work, but then suppressing the scientific debate around this work, bullying scientists that are, that are trying to oversee them, uh, damaging the scientific discussion, uh, essentially poisoning the well of science uh, in order to be able to justify this dangerous work that they're doing. And they, they very, I mean, if Alex, if you're right, they caused a pandemic, a massive destructive one, the worst in a century. Exactly. And they lobbied for the sort of lax oversight that led, and they created these systems of rewarding Ron Fashir for his paper. He published a paper in some of the best journals. So those journals gave him this 
you know, this lauded position of having published in their journals and, you know, all the media he got, all the funding he got was a consequence of taking these risks. And so we rewarded risk taking as scientists. And I think we need to have some very deep soul searching about that. Well, I mean, the public, ultimately, it's the public that supports the work of these scientists, Mm -hmm. right? Either the NIH is through tax money, American tax money, Wellcome Trust, it's through uh, buying the drugs that uh, that fund the Wellcome Foundation, um, that ultimately fund the Wellcome Foundation. You have essentially the public that's supporting the work, this dangerous work done by these scientists. They're not operating in a vacuum, and they have a moral obligation to the public that supports them. And, you know, I think that that's a great point. One of the most important things I think we can do as scientists is popularize this in a way that's not, you know, we have to be mindful of the immense geopolitical stakes, you know, because if this was a pandemic, you know, caused entirely by the People's Liberation Army conducting classified research or something like that, then, yeah, if the whole world comes to agree to that and have formal positions, that could have consequences. And so, as temperatures rise between China and the U.S. over Taiwan and other things in the South China Sea, and as we're having you know heat in the Middle East um, with Israel's invasion of Gaza, of Gaza, all these are all of these you know temperatures that are hot right now. This issue could make it a lot hotter if we're not careful. So I think one of the best things we could do is just be localized in where we point to accountability and where we ask for transparency while as scientists popularizing what's going on so that the public can make informed decisions so they can have informed consent. If they want to do this work, then let it be done democratically. Let it be decided. Right. By- like there, I mean, I, I, like, I like this idea. Like the point is that right now what's happened is, is that the, a relatively small group of scientists who decided to take this risk on the behalf of the entire world's population are trying to pull the wool over other people's eyes, everyone's eyes, to make it pretend like that that they what they did wasn't dangerous, and that in fact not just that that it was absolutely necessary to prevent the next pandemic. And they're using very disturbing rhetoric. They're saying certain people are and are not the experts, as opposed to talking about the underlying science at the heart. You know, I've been called not an expert despite working on viral origins and pathogen spillover pre-COVID and having a PhD from Princeton and just like doing all the scientific things I needed to do to become an expert. You know, and so you have this way in which scientists are using rhetoric to exclude other perspectives from the room, just like what happened with the Great Barrington Declaration, you know, to call people fringe, to call to assign political labels to them that, you know, are ultimately intended as dog whistles to discredit scientists as opposed to addressing the meat of their arguments and the, you know, the content of their ideas. I think that's something that's happening that scientists need to avoid. We need to call out that bad rhetoric and focus on the issue at hand, which is that Biology's entered into a world where we can create dangerous things. Some scientists want to do it. Other people are pointing out these dangers may not be worth the, the benefits. The benefits are not very clear. The dangers are very real. Um, and we just need to inform the public in a way that is, I guess, more honorable for scientists than the current rhetoric we're seeing and, in conspiracy and, theories. And, <laughs> and the scientists need to accept the verdict of the public. Because I believe that if you told the public and the public really understood the kinds of risks that the science, that these scientists took on our behalf, the, the public would say no. Oh, I, uh, yeah, I think so too. And I think that's, we, you know, people who are receiving federal grants are receiving money from taxpayers. And I've always taken that responsibility very seriously. You know, so I feel the civic duty. When I see something, I say something scientifically 
that was the ILI paper. I was like, I know this is controversial. I know within the scientific community, I can be ostracized for this. But as a citizen and a scientist, I feel like I need to share this with the world. And that was the same for this paper on the restriction sites of SARS-2. And I think this is the same thing for the discussions on, on gain-of-function research of concern. We should, be, we should be addressing this and doing it in a way that's inclusive of different perspectives and not what's currently happening is academics having conferences where they don't invite people who believe different things. Like, that's the worst thing that could happen. I know you've hosted some wonderful conferences. We've been to conferences together where the invite has been sent out far and wide, but some scientists don't show up just because we may believe different things or they think we believe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the most remarkable thing. Like, I've never thought in my life I'd see scientists deciding to not show up to a conference simply because there are people that might be there that disagree with them. That's exactly what a conference is. Like, as far as I've, in my experience, is like a place where people go to, to express their disagreements and actually also to learn from each other through those disagreements. Exactly. If we just can get to the point of giving each other the benefit of the doubt and start to have these conversations again, and you can sign me up. I am very happy to talk with anyone and focus on the issues at hand, you know, focus on the science and the risks and the risk management um, or focus on, you know, all the different nuances of SARS-2 origins and what can we do next and thinking in the most objective possible way, I'm down. <laughs> I, I think, I think uh, like to me, the most important thing is to involve the public in these discussions. I think so in, too. In, in an honest way. I mean, like I think the public really needs to know what risks are being taken because it affects them. It affects their kids' education. It affects their ability to see their parents' uh, age effectively, uh, age well, whether to visit people in, in their, when, they're, when they're sick. It affects their likelihood of uh, being able to, to, to run their small business, to, to feed their family. Every single decision like, uh, that, that they, people take for granted is affected by these kinds of decisions that scientists make on their behalf. But that's not right. Right. Those that if if the, if uh, one group of scientists decide that they're going to take risks that all the rest of us, the world face, we ought to have a say in it. One hundred percent. I really think that we have a, as scientists have this moral obligation to popularize science, when it, especially when it becomes risky. We need to help the public understand what they're funding and we need to present it in the most objective possible way. We can't have scientists behaving like an industrial lobby. That sows distrust in science. So we need to be able to present things in a way that captures the full range of perspectives and that does it in one venue so the public can see that full range and pick from it. When I was consulting managers during the pandemic, this is what I did. I didn't say, like, I have my beliefs, sure, but my job as a scientific consultant is to give these people the full set of possibilities, the arguments for and against, the steel men everywhere, and let them make the decision because ultimately they were the public servants. They were representing people of New York or wherever. And so I think it's really important for scientists to tap into the civic duty of being a scientist with federal funding. Um, and I think that starts with popularizing this work. I mean, take an example of like, imagine if string theorists go even to smaller scales and higher energies and they start naming things that just make no sense to anyone, you know, like blorps and blips and lips or something and i kind of already do that alex <laughs> we need to tell people what blorps are and what's this experiment we're proposing and if it has risks discussed i mean the yeah. thing is like the physicists are much better at and are quite good at this like they they actually yep. do try to, to to turn their esoteric ideas into something that, that other people might care about 100 um, and uh but the problem here is not even 
the the lack of a decision to, to try to popularize the problem here is like an active cover up of of dangerous decisions made by a relatively small group of very very powerful scientists who then turn around and try to destroy the careers of anyone who who criticizes them or tries to like open up a scientific conversation around it it makes it very it's a, it's a really really dangerous place for scientists to be in and i think that the broader scientific community needs to understand the stakes it's not simply about this small number of virologists the entire scientific enterprise depends on the public trusting us as scientists. Yep. And I think there's so much more to talk about as well in terms of how we can restructure the scientific enterprise to avoid this. What checks and balances do we need within science to avoid something like an Anthony Fauci who can decide who to invite on a call and who could approve things without democratic approval or, you know, representatives chiming in? Like, how do we restructure science and scientific decisions and scientific funding and scientific publications in a way that helps us have these discussions and that gives scientists the benefit of the doubt, lets us disagree and lets us figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have kept you for two hours now, Alex. And uh, I love chatting with you, Jay. I could do it for another five, but a long one. <laughs> well, we, we, we'll, we'll certainly talk, talk in the future because the, the agenda you just brought up about how to reform science deserves its own hours of podcast time, I think. Uh, you, you, know, you know, lots and lots of like thought. Um, but I want to thank you for this time together uh, and thank you for your contributions during the pandemic. Uh, one of the very uh, few uh, bright spots of the pandemic for me has been the, uh, the, 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 the privilege to get to know scientists like you and people like you and become friends that I would have probably never met had the pandemic never happened. Uh, that's, so um, anyways, thank you, Alex. I really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, for, for the Illusion of Consensus podcast, this is uh, Professor Jay Bhattacharya signing up. Out. Uh, see you next time. Take care. Hi, everyone. A quick word from our first and exciting new sponsor, Alchemy Elements. We've been shopping around trying to find the best sponsors that align with our mission and our values and what we stand for. And we've come across Alchemy Elements, which I'm very excited to bring to you guys, which is a synergistic herbal supplement. It's a mix of several adaptogenic plant compounds. For those of you who don't know, adaptogens, you might have heard on Andrew Huberman's podcast, are uh, plant medicines that help the body adapt to stress, essentially. And so there's a number of adaptogens in here, including cordyceps mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, astrologus, shiljot, polygala, lion's mane mushrooms, and other compounds as well. And you just take a tablespoon of this, you put it in your morning coffee or your smoothie or protein shake, and you're good to go. Um, I've been doing this for about a week, and as it suggests, um, some of the short-term effects of increased focus, increased concentration, more energy, I've already been feeling some of that. Uh, look forward to taking it more in the long term and reporting back as we do more of these ads. Uh, we've been very careful and selective in what to, what, what to sponsor on our program, and this is something that I can totally get behind. And as long as you keep hearing ads about this particular product, Alchemy Elements, you can be assured that this is something that I stand behind and can personally vouch for and recommend individuals try. Um, so for a limited time right now, um, people who are watching or listening to this podcast, they can get a 10% discount on their first order, or they can get a 30% discount for all subscription orders if you um, subscribe for a certain amount of deliveries per month. And if you um, 
order a subscription package, then you can get the premium gold kit as well, which includes this um, really nice gold bottle and a gold spoon to store your alchemy elements. Um, just use the code word illusion. If you're on Spotify or Apple or Substack, um, we'll drop a link below, or you can manually uh, type in alchemyelements.com and you can add um, your uh, products to the cart and you can put in the code illusion and you can get the 10% off discount for the first order or 30% off for the subscription order and you can get your gold kit. Uh, thank you so much to Alchemy Elements. Um, please check them out and uh, I hope you enjoy their products.